We're going to dedicate this year in memory of Sarah Bat Ravitzchak Meshulam. Um, Sarah Lehman, she uh, was the grand, uh, tonight is her yardsite, and she was the grandmother of two of our alumni, uh, Josh Eisner, who, who was actually a first year writer student, and uh, Jason, who uh, was year four and five. Um, so I want to honor her memory, do a little learning in her memory. Um, this was also, this is interesting, it's rare that I'll give a shear having given the shear. But the last time I gave the shear was on a Thursday, except it wasn't Thursday night, because half of the yeshiva was flying that Thursday night. That was the morning that we announced whatever the details were that caused half the yeshiva to leave Thursday night, the other half to leave on Sunday, and subsequently to miss the last two weeks of Chorosman and the rest of the year. Nobody knew when they left, they weren't coming back, but because of COVID, Chorif, uh, Kaitzman turned into a Zoomsman, wasn't quite the same. And this year wasn't really up to spot because, you know, we were leaving and whatever, and it was like 20 guys in the base. So I figured this is a great opportunity to give it again. So, 1988. 1988 was a really intense year. Um, It started actually in December of 1987. Um, There was a, I think it was a gasoline truck. Um, and it was driving through Aza, through Jabalia, which back then was part of Israeli territory. And it had a terrible accident. It hit a few Arab civilians on a street corner. And word spread that an Israeli truck had killed three Arabs. And much later, due to intelligence, found out that they were looking for an excuse. This had all been planned. And riots broke out in Jabalia and then all over the Gaza Strip. They spread to the entire sort of Yudav uh, Shimron, what some mistakenly call the West Bank. And, um, and thus began what became known as the First Intifada. Now, I had finished the army, I don't know, six or seven months earlier. So technically, I wasn't supposed to go do Miluim. You're supposed to get a year off before you go to reserve duty. But I uh, got a call that they were desperate for officers, and uh, the brigade commander of the unit that I was going to be in reserve duty in wanted to meet me. Now, <clears throat> brigade commanders, like, he commands battalion commanders, battalion commanders command company commanders, and company commanders command a lieutenant. At the time, I was a, second, a first lieutenant. So this is like God. So obviously you go, and when I got there, there was a whole crew there, and they said they needed me to come, and would I volunteer for Miluim? You kind of can't say no, especially because, you know, he's going to be your commander when you start Miluim. So I ended up doing two and a half weeks. Probably the worst Miluim I ever did. Uh, we were stationed in Jabalia, which is a nasty piece of territory in the middle of Gaza Strip. It's one of the most densely populated places on earth. And most of the people there are not particularly happy, especially when they see guys in green walking around. Um, riots, Molotov cocktails, shootings, burning rubber tires, literally kitchen sinks thrown out of window. I mean, uh, we could spend the whole day just the stories from that month. But this one sticks out of my mind. I had just finished patrol. And we had come in, and there was an urgent call on the radio that uh, uh, another young officer, lieutenant, who was even younger than me, he had less experience, um, had gotten stuck into a riot. They were caught at the tip of an alley. They were surrounded by hundreds of rioting, you know, throwing, shooting, Molotov cocktailing, slingshotting Arabs. um, And they were under severe duress. There was no way for them to get out. 
Now, what happens when you have a situation like this and there's a riot, you don't try to solve the riot on your own with six or 12 men. Your job basically is to hold the fort until whatever vehicles they can muster from the headquarters and battalion will come in and they'll attack them from like, you know, run at them from two different directions. They'll always leave the widest avenue of escape like open because the whole idea throw some tear grass grenades, whatever, shoot a few bullets in the air. And usually that solves the problem. But because of the distress that this commander was under, and you could hear it in his voice in the radio, people were realizing that this was getting serious. So Rami Lanier, who was the battalion commander, he was the son of uh, Dan Lanier, who was a legend. He was one of the probably three individuals who saved the state of Israel, along with the Kashbarach, obviously, in the Yom Kippur War. Um, and he was an amazing battalion commander, and he, was, he got everybody who he could find. It didn't matter if you had come back from patrol or not. There were like 10 vehicles, armored personnel carriers, jeeps, whatever, and we all took, you know, ran out of, the, out, of the, out of the base, and we're heading for this alleyway, for this place that he's... And I, it was a little strange to me, because I had just been there like half an hour earlier, and there was nothing going on. So I couldn't understand how a whole riot developed in like 20 minutes. But all right, so we get there, and everybody jumps out, and we're looking, and there's nothing. There's nobody there. There's no riot. There's no commander, right? And he's getting more and more stressed on the radio. And we suddenly realize he's lost. The reason he's in such trouble is because he took a wrong turn somewhere. And he has no idea where he is. Now that's scary. And there's hundreds of Arabs rioting. And they're going to run out of ammunition. And they don't have enough riot ammunition. This is turning bad really fast. So we're trying to figure out where he is. It turned out that because of a left turn instead of a right, he had actually ventured into an area that we weren't supposed to go into. Right? Our whole mission was to protect the road. There was no reason to patrol deep inside the refugee camps because the mission was just that, you know, that if there were riots on the road, there's really you know, civilians living in the area, it should be safe to get through. <clears throat> no reason to go inside there. And he had taken a wrong turn, he was deep in the hood. Anyway, it took about a half an hour, 40 minutes, and we finally found him. And you can only begin to imagine how terrified this guy must have been. He had probably the longest half an hour of his life. And thank God, like, nobody got injured, everybody was okay, whatever. But the most amazing moment of this whole experience, you know, I mean, by the time, as they realized that he was lost, and they didn't know where he was, they started being mafil more kohot. So there was like a neighboring battalion, it got all the way up to brigade. By the time we actually got to the place where he was, there must have been like 40 vehicles, probably about three, 400 men, the, the civilians who were there took one look at all these vehicles converging and they just took off in the hole. We didn't even have to fire a gas grenade. But he was terrified. And I happened to be standing near him. And Rami Lanier, you got to understand, this guy felt like, I mean, he just, I mean, the entire brigade, battalion, everybody, you know, hundreds of men, people who were supposed to be in other places, all the cohort pulled, battalion commander, company commanders, brigade commander. You could only imagine how he felt because he took a long turn and he's an officer. He should know better, right? Everybody's nightmare. That was my biggest nightmare to get lost like that. What do you do? Like, what do you say? And Rami Lanier, the battalion commander, who's basically responsible for this whole thing, I see him and he gets to the officer and I happen to be standing about this distance away. And he goes over to, to this officer and he gives him a chap on the back and he says, I was looking for a way to give the men a good exercise, so very original way to figure it out. And the guy kind of laughed a little and they walked off. And I remember that moment. That was such a, was such a powerful lesson in leadership. Like the guy had gotten the message. He knew he really screwed up. There was no yelling at him that would accomplish anything. 
And he figured out exactly what this guy needed to hear. You know, you can break a person. I mean, here's a boy, did X years in the army, motivated, became an officer. You could break a guy like that. Or you could build him up. Now, why do I tell you this story? Why do I tell you this story at the beginning of Parshat Vayakel? Vayakel. So how does this parsha start, right? What would you expect me to talk about in this parsha? Let's go. Be honest. One word. Pardon? Mishkan. Right? It's all about the Mishkan. Building the Mishkan, clothing the Mishkan, Caleb in the Mishkan, right? We'll get to what you said. Chap. Okay? In a minute. Vayakel Moshe et kol adat Israel. So Moshe Rabbeinu gathers together the entire congregation. Put aside for the moment whether you call them an Eda or a Kila. Is there a difference between those two terms? And if it's a Kila, why does it say Adat B'nai Israel? And if it's an Eda, why does it say Ve'akel? That's a good question for you to think about on Shabbat. He gathers everybody together. Call Adat B'nai Israel. For what? So Rashi, a very important Rashi that we actually once mentioned here in a Shia a lot long ago, this was the day after Yom Kippur. Now, why is he gathering them together the day after Yom Kippur? So let's think about this. Do you remember what happened on Yom Kippur? Yeah? Let's talk about that. When does the Egel Azav happen? Wait, wait, wait. What date is the Egel Azav? Nope. By the way, what major mistake, what major chait happened in Tishbev according to the Menrish? Chait Amaraglim. That is correct. Okay, good catch. All right? It says they cried on that night. The Menrish picks up on, this, on that statement. And Rashi quotes the Menrish. You cried for nothing. I'll give you something to cry about. That is a very powerful idea, you know? It's like a guy is complaining, because, I don't know, his bed isn't comfortable, you know, in the hotel the night after Auschwitz. Just, really? Like, that's what's on your mind? So it's almost like you want to say, you want something to complain about? I'll give you something to complain about. So, Chet is Tisha that's And just so everybody's in the same space, right? Jewish people at the foot of Har Sinai. There's a reason why the date of Matan Torah is not exact. So 6th, 7th of Sivan, whatever. 7th of Sivan, Moshe goes up. 7th of Sivan, Ten Commandments. 7th of Sivan, everybody's in heaven, right? Vayar right? Vayanu, this is the day they say, Naseven Ishma, everything's great. 40 days later, they come down, Shivasabatamas, right? Sivan Tammuz, 40 days, 7th to the 17th. Moshe comes down, it's a disaster. What famous event happens on this day? Cheta Ego. What does Moshe do? Destroys the Lucha. This is not a good day. And it proves to be a day that will forever be not a good day. Okay. Now for three days, Moshe does what? After the 17th of Tammuz. He grinds up the Lucha, grinds up the Egel, kills a few thousand people, gets Levim. Takes some time to deal with this. Okay. On the third day, when they're done with this, what does he do? Goes back up. 20th day of Thomas. Why is he going back up? Nope. Because he's got to pray for the Jews. Got to pray for the Jews. 
Well, it's not really prayer, but we won't go there right now, right? He's got to fix this. Because Hashem basically says, what do I need these people for? I'll destroy them and I'll be left with you. Right? How many days is he up there the second time? 40 days. Comes down after 40 days. What date is that? Rosh Chodesh Elul. 40 days after the 20th of Tammuz. Nisan Yer Sivan Tammuz Av Elul. Rosh Chodesh Elul. And, that's, and, and what happens in Rosh Chodesh Elul? The Jewish people are forgiven. Okay? So that's why Rosh Chodesh Elul is always the beginning of our journey to Tshuva. Right? So we're done, right? We're forgiven. Well, we're not done. What's missing? The Torah. Like, what we were supposed to get. Now, that's an interesting question. Like, Moshe was up there for 40 days. So whatever we got is still around. Why does Moshe teach it to us now? What do you think? What's changed? What's changed the most? We have. We're not the same people as we were on the 7th of Sivan. We're now a people that did Chayta Egel. You know, a couple gets married. And the husband messes up and, I don't know, God forbid, adulters. And maybe they succeed in overcoming it and maybe they succeed in, in, in getting back together. But the marriage will never be the same. It, it might even be stronger, but it won't be the same. He's not the same. She, nothing's the same. Because Baruch was the same. Everything else is different. So Moshe Benu has to go up and do it again. He's got to get the Torah again. What's the fundamental difference between the first time Moshe goes up and the second time Moshe goes up? Big difference. You now have to fashion the Luchot. So let's not get into exactly what happens there. That's a great cheer for Yom Kippur. Does he write them? Does he fashion them? Is he writing them? When Hashem says to him, that's a whole interesting discussion. But whatever's missing in the first receiving of Torah, clearly, the Jewish people aren't doing anything different the second time around. Moshe is. So one could make a case for saying that what's missing is something to do with the leadership. And, and just as an aside, that's powerful. Like if you're in, uh, I don't know, summer camp, and you're in Madrich, and your kids all mess up, they do something terrible, you've told them not to do it, they do something terrible, that's on you. You have messed up. You may not have done anything wrong. You may have like, you know, 15 juvenile delinquents on your hand. It doesn't matter. Right? That ownership is powerful. And it starts with Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down a third time. Three times for 40 days. Third time he comes down and he brings the second luchot. And what? What happens on the, on the third time around? What happens on Yom Kippur? What is that the day of? Kapara, what does that mean? So everybody says Yom Kippur is the day we got forgiven, but it's not true. We got forgiven on Rosh Chodesh Elul. So do you remember way back in Elul's man, and we talked about, I shared with you the idea of Salvechik, that there are two things that happen when we make a mistake. Okay? One of them needs Kapara, and one of them needs Tahara. Okay? Tahara is that I have to change. I have to, I, I became a thief, I have to undo that. Kapara, I have to fix the consequence of what I did. I have to return the money. So this is really interesting. Because I would have thought, right, and we actually find this in Makoros, it's a day of Tahara. But it's also a day of Kapara. And it's called Yom Kippurim. So that day is all about fixing the consequence 
of what happened. We gotta, we gotta fix something. So now Moshe Rabbeinu gathers the Jewish people together the next day. Zechazak. Okay? Gathers together. Kolaida. This is a moment of pure. What word would you give this? What word would you give this? Moshe Rabbeinu gathers them together. Okay? They've got the second Lucha. They've had Yom Kippur. It's the next day. A day of what? You would say renewal. Pardon? A fresh beginning. Potential. Maybe. Maybe Moshe did tshuva. Maybe the Jewish people impacted this. Maybe the Jewish people have to do their tshuva. But... So what does he do? He gathers them together. Now let's think about this for a minute. See, I think Moshe understands that just because the Jewish people have forgiven or been forgiven by Hashem doesn't mean they've forgiven themselves. Like, understand how, how powerful this is. Right? Take a look in... When, 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 when Hashem describes what happened in Chet Egel, He says, oh, this is in, in Parashat Kitisa, Perak Lamed Bet, Pasuk Lamed Dalet, 32-34. When the day comes for a reckoning, when I remember Shez Hashem, whatever that means, I will remember their mistake. Every time Hashem wants to give us a zetz, Chet is going to come up. And just in case you think I'm reading, I didn't listen to Rashi, famous Rashi. shamati alecha yachad. I listened to you, Moshe Rabbeinu, and didn't destroy them all because they deserve to be destroyed for doing that. But when I remember their iniquities, a little bit of the punishment, of the consequence, is going to be, we're going to throw in a little chayta ego. Listen, this is unbelievable medrash. No travesty, no terrible occurrence, no punishment comes to the Jewish people. That doesn't have a little bit of payback for Chet Now, on a practical level, you know, it's like, let's say, uh, I don't know, let's say your parent and your son does something really terrible. And you know that if you give him what he deserves, you're going to lose your son. There'll be nothing, like, you need, to, you, need, you need to kill him, but there'll be nothing left. So you spread it out. You know, it's like a payment plan. Like you borrowed $10,000 me and you're a pauper. So I say to you, okay, pay me a dollar a week. You're still paying back. You keep your dignity. But you're doing it in a way you can manage it. But could you imagine? Like, I'm not sure this is meant to be taken literally, but if it was, Spanish expulsion, Khurban by Rishon, Khurban by Sheni, almost being destroyed on Purim, Khmelnitsky's massacres, the Crusades, the Holocaust, all part of Chet Egel. And the Jewish people, supposedly, understand this. How do you get up from a day like that? How do you deal with that? Like, the, the guilt. This is where Jewish guilt begins, right? So Moshe Rabbeinu has this enormous moment. He understands he's got to bring the people together. He's got to say something. So what would you say? You're Moshe Rabbeinu. If you didn't look at the Parsha, what would you say? David Herman, what do you think? What would you say? You have a chance. Jewish people are in the doldrums. They're depressed. By the way, they have not spoken. They have not had a communication with Karsh Baruch Hu since our Sinai. Devastating. There's no fire from heaven. There's nothing. They're just stuck in the desert. 
And according to some of them, Farshim, they already know they're not getting out. So they're like this low. And Moshe Rabbeinu has this enormous opportunity. You know, he's like Coach Carter. You know, right before the big game when they're halfway through and they, and they looks like they're losing. And he's got to get them for the speech, right? So what does he say to them? What would you say? What topic would you pick? Yeah. I would give them a job to do. Okay, okay, that's good. Job to do. What job are they given to do? To build a Mishkan. That's what, that would work for me. We're going to build something together. Amazing. By the way, that's why we're all gathered, because we have to do it together. Because the Chet Eagle split us up, we're going to do it together. Does he talk to them about the Mishkan now? Nope. That'll come, but nope. Give him a Nigun. Oh, that's a good idea. Okay, everybody repeat after me. Yeah, ba 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 ba. I don't think so. Nope, it's not what. So this is weird. You know what he does? Listen to what he does. Vayakel Moshe et kol adat ne Yisrael vayom alehim eile advarim shetziva Hashem lasot v'dam sheishit yamim tiyaseh melacha uvayom ashevi right melacha labor can be done for six days on the seventh day yelachem kodesh Shabbat Shabbaton Hashem Shabbos kol haoseh bo melacha yumat and whoever does melacha will die lo tevaruish b'chol moshevot echem b'yom Shabbat and you shouldn't light a fire on Shabbos and then. Break in the line, Parsha. Vayomer Moshe Kadat Nelzeh Davar Shetivashem Chumet Chem Chumal Hashem. Now he starts talking about the Mishkan. So I understand what is Shabbos doing here. First of all, we've already heard Shabbos. We heard Shabbos at Mara before they even got to Har Sinai. We heard Shabbos at Har Sinai, right? Zacharot Yom Shabbat. What does this have to do with anything? Why does it give? They already know this. What does Shabbos have to do with this? And if that isn't enough, don't light a fire? Really? So Coach Carter's in that. Does everybody know who Coach Carter is? This movie, right? Baruch Hashem, he's so bucky. Right? Good for you. What was the biggest game you ever heard of? The footballers. The, the Tottenham Hotspurs are beating the Arsenal Chvesnists, right? And it's like, and it's like, it's like two minutes left, and, and, and they got to win the game. And the coach, right? That's what we're talking about here. So the coach says, all right, guys, come on, we can do this. I want everybody to make sure to tie your shoelaces. And he walks out of the room. Look at the guy like he's nuts. Don't light a fire? Really? That's what's going on here? You got some matches there? You think you could put them away maybe? Shabbos? What does that do with anything? So what do we have to do? Three things we have to do. Some of it we've already done the work, but we'll repeat them here. Okay? Three things we have to do. First of all, we have to understand, what was Cheta Eka? Secondly, we have to understand, what is Shabbat? <clears throat> and thirdly, we have to understand, what does it mean to light a fire? Why is that the malacha that was chosen here? By the way, does anybody know a nafkamina? Because this is mentioned here, of lighting a fire on Shabbat, possibly electricity, that's a subject of some debate, um, as opposed to another malacha. Big nafkamina. Anybody know? So look up the Mishnah Brura in Tafresh Chet, okay, the Ramah actually, um, which is in the Halachos of Yom Kippur. Hang on one second, it's the Halachos of Yom Kippur. It talks there, it's the only place you'll find the Mishnah Brura, because Mishnah Brura only deals with Arachayim, he doesn't deal with Chosh and Mishpah, whatever, where the Mishnah Brura, the Ramah actually talks about giving Tochacha. Okay, it's a, well, I think it's a famous Ramah, but maybe that's just because I know it, but uh, women used to prepare the food for after the fast when the fast had already begun on Erev Yom Kippur. Right? In other words, it was after Adlakos Neros, but it wasn't quite dark yet. And they're not supposed to do that. So the Shulchan Aruch says, don't stop them. 
because they're going to keep doing it anyway. And, and the Ramah concurs and says, Mutav Shiv Shogin. You don't tell someone off for something if you think he's going to keep doing it anyway. Better you should do it by accident, right? Shalom Aleichem. Better you should do it by accident, right? Okay. So the Ramah makes a distinction. <coughs> the Mishnah Buruh Paskins this way. That that is not true. You can look up the details. I'm not quoting this exactly correctly, but whatever. If it's a Doraisa, which is Beferish mentioned in the Torah. In other words, there are certain instances where you can let a person accidentally do something, but Lotavaruesh, lighting a fire, since that's Beferish written in the Torah, that you can't do. And there are all sorts of Limudim that the Gemara has about this teaches us all the Malachos, and I'm not going to get into them right now. What does it mean to light a fire? Why is it so important? And thirdly, <coughs> sorry, sorry. So three, Chet Egel, Shabbos, and fires. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Chet Egel. There's something completely illogical about Chet Egel. Jewish people are at the foot of Sinai. They just saw, they saw sound. We can't even understand that. They heard the Aserah Sadibros, the first two from Hashem himself. Like if there was ever a group of people, you know sometimes guys come to write that. Say, I really want to figure out if Hashem exists. I want to develop my relationship with Hashem. But if you just got out of me trying, saw the sea split, stood at our Sinai, you know, nobody was buying endless light. You know what I mean? Like, there was no need for it. Rabbi Sachs would have been out of business. Like, everybody knew Hashem existed. So how could they worship a calf? I mean, that's ridiculous. What does that even mean? How did Chet Egel happen? And by the way, it's interesting. If you look at the Pesukim around Chet Egel, they make no sense. I mean, what does the Pesuk say? It says, Kizem Moshe'ish, Asher Halam Numeret Mitzrayim, right? When, 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 when Aaron is talking about, sort of, we don't need to do this, whatever this is, he says, Moshe took us off Mitzrayim, it'll be okay, he'll be down. What do they do? They throw gold in the fire, or he does whatever, right? There was an eagle that was made, cast, calf. And they said, These are your gods that took you out of Egypt. Now put aside for the moment who is saying that and why they say these are your gods and not these are our gods. How could you possibly think that a, that a calf took you out of Egypt? It makes absolutely no sense. So what is Chet so let's talk about this for a minute. You know, there's an idea in the Zohar, Al-Tikri Egel ele Igul. Don't call it the Egel, call it the Igul. What's an Igul? A circle. What is unique about the circle in all of nature? The circle is the closest shape to perfection. In fact, some of you may remember when we talked about tefillin, squares represent what we do with the circles of nature Hashem gives us. So what does it mean that they were trying to make an Egel? They didn't forget that Hashem existed. They just didn't know how to deal with it. You know, I was sitting with a student this week, interviewing a boy, and um, had a very honest discussion with him. Okay? He had a lot of questions. And he was honest enough to say to me, I'm a little nervous about finding out the answer to my question. I said, wow, that's pretty honest. Why? Anyone want to take a guess why he's nervous about getting his questions answered? Yeah, right? Got to give up the party if God's real. I mean, I personally think you get to join the party, but we can talk about that another time. You know, all the fun you're going to have in college, now you have to have meaning. Oh, how annoying is that? Right? So, like, how do you deal with that? 
Like, what if you're sitting in a class? You're in the middle of Rabbi. I have a vivid memory of a boy once. Rabbi Aaron was giving one of his classes. And, you know, he builds this up, right? He repeats a lot of things for a while until... And this boy came out, and they were walking right through there. I was walking down the steps, and they were walking through the hall there. And the boy says, oh, my God. Like, God exists. God exists. And I'm thinking, like, there's not many issues about where that's the discussion when you're walking out the door, but okay. And, like, that could blow your mind. Like, how do you deal with that? And by the way, don't think this is just a sort of an intangible, esoteric question that's just interesting to think about. So you go back to college, okay? Yeah, where are you going to college? Never. Okay, so you go to Emory. So you go back to Emory, and you're sitting having a coffee with someone after a philosophy class, right? And you want to say to him, you know, God loves you. Now, that happens to be true. Like, of course Hashem loves us, Hashem created us. But if you say that to the average person, he thinks you're nuts. Right? He's like, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you, what do you do with that? So what did they try to do? Right? By the way, what did the eagle take the place of? Eagle takes the place of Moshe Rabbeinu, not a Baruch. It's very interesting, right? They see that Moshe is not coming down. What does Moshe not coming down have to do with Egel? If the reason they have an Egel, they're worshiping calf, is because they're not worshiping God, then what does that have to do with Moshe Rabbeinu? So there are those who suggest that they thought of Moshe as God. Oh, that makes no sense to me. What was Moshe? If Moshe wasn't God, what was Moshe? Moshe was... He was what? The leader. He was the medium. He was the way we connect to Hashem. Now that sounds very suspiciously like a different religion, but it's not Judaism, right? So they've lost their medium. So they need to come up with something else which will be a medium to relate to Hashem. Now let me ask you a question. Let's say this is correct. Let's say they feel we've never seen the ability to have a direct relationship with Hashem. That's not how Egypt worked. There were priests that were the medium through which you connected to the higher spheres and deities. And Moshe Rabbeinu was their priest. So now Moshe's not gone. How are they connected to Hashem? So they come up with another idea. And this vehicle will connect them to Hashem. What does this remind you of? Should I say this again? They come up with another medium which they believe will remind them and help them to connect to Hashem. What does it remind you of? This is the Ramam's first paragraph of Rosanna. The Ramam gives this whole history story, and he talks about the fact that, you know, they worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars because that reminded them of Hashem, and then eventually they forgot why they were praying towards the sun, and the sun became the, 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 the deity that they were praying to. In other words, that which was a means became the ends, and that's, that's one way of understanding of Rosanna. Now, by the way, if this is true, first of all, Chet Egel makes a lot of sense now. Because what was the mistake that the Jewish people made? The mistake was to think that you need a vehicle, a, 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 what's, what's the word I'm looking for? An object, something else, a medium through which to connect to Hashem. And even though they may still well have been in the stage of remembering that this is just about connecting to Hashem, the Torah is teaching us where that goes. Like if you take the medium and that becomes the way you connect to Hashem, if you lose the ability to connect directly to Hashem, then everything gets lost. And there's no point to anything. So the first thing that has to happen is you have to destroy that medium. And let's, let's, this is a dangerous topic. Um, and it's really important that nobody walk away thinking they've got the totality of the topic. But let's take an example. If you have a rabbi 
a leader, and he is a source of wisdom, but his wisdom is a Baruch Hu's wisdom, and he helps you to connect to Hashem, but you're connecting directly to Hashem, that's an awesome thing. But if you start to think you need the rabbi to connect to Hashem, and how can you connect to Hashem without him, then you've missed the entire point. And that rabbi is one step closer to being a Vodazara. That's a little scary. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. And it didn't quite work out so well for us. Right? Now we understand what Chayta Egel is. <coughs> Chayta Egel is where we mix up the ends and means. Chayta Egel is where we don't trust ourselves that we can connect to Hashem. Chayta Egel is we think that God has to be tangible. Okay. What is Shabbat? Now it makes sense to me. We're almost done. Hashem says to the Jewish people, listen, let's take a pause. How did this happen? How did this happen? We got so caught up. We were so excited. Look at the fire. We saw sound. We got to keep this going. Where's Moshe Rabbeinu? Let's keep this going. And think about it. How long did the Chet Egel take? This is actually very simple. The Jewish people see that Moshe is late. That's the Pesach says. Rashi and the Medrash seem to imply that Moshe, they thought he was going to come by the sixth hour. He was really coming in the evenings. He took about a few hours. And Aaron couldn't hold them off. And he says, go get your gold. Now these are Jews. It should take them a while to get their money. Boom, they're all back with their gold. Because they're caught up in this emotion. And the next thing you know, out pops an ego. It was like this. It was caught up in the enthusiasm and missing the point. So what's the tikkun for that? How do you fix that? Before you build and do something, first you've got to take a pause. And that's what Shabbat is. Shabbat is all about taking a pause. I want you to know, if you really get Shabbos, you know what you're looking forward to? You're looking forward to just slowing it down. Right? I think this is a mistake sometimes that educators make. They get all excited about Shabbatonim, and they're all on fire, and you've got to put on the rabbi's voice, and you've got to give the classes, and you've got to be on for 25 hours every Shabbos. Very unhealthy. Everybody needs to take a pause. You need to slow down. What is it we're doing here? And that's exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. Let's slow this down. How do I develop a relationship with Hashem directly? That's what Shabbos is for. To learn to be in the moment. Not stuck in the past. Because the Jewish people are very close to being broken. Look what they did. Don't get stuck in the past. But don't run forward to the future. Take a moment. And why is Lot Tavaru H. B'chol Why is that a symbol of this? Because what does fire represent? You know, the Gemara says that, uh, Medrash, says that fire was a gift that Hashem gave to us, right? Because we were expelled from Gan Eden. So Hashem gave us this gift. And there's one measure, I think it's a czar, but it doesn't really matter right now. What day of the week was Adam created on? Sixth day. Sixth day, okay? When did Chet Adam v'chava happen? Sixth day. When did they get expelled? Sixth day. This was a busy, busy day. Busy day. So one day it says they were expelled before Shabbos. One day it says they were expelled at the end of Shabbos. It was a busy day. Now, Adam Rishon's only had one day. And putting aside how long a period of time that is, it's all light, it's all sun, it's all great. Gets kicked out of the garden, you know what happens? It goes dark. So if you're Adam Rishon and you don't know any better, on a pshat level... Look what I just did. Look what I just did. 
I have a friend who wrote a book. He was a kid, it's a longer story, and he was playing in his dad's office, and the secretary told him that you can't play with that, you can't plug all those plugs in, because the whole building could explode. She just didn't want him to do it. But he didn't listen to her, and he took the plugs and he plugged them in, and it happened to be right then that there was a huge blackout. And this was the famous blackout, I think it was like 1970-something, and the whole eastern seaboard blacked out. There was like a whole story with... Uh, yeah, right? And he was, he was terrified they were going to find out that he did it. He was sure that he caused the whole eastern seaboard to black out and the FBI was going to show up, whatever. That sounds in retrospect ridiculous, but you know, that's what other generation thinks. So what does Hashem give him? Hashem gives him the gift of fire. Gives him the gift of light. That's why we light candles there of Shabbos. And it's why we light a fire... Matzi Shabbos. By the way, what's the difference between the candles we light on Erev Shabbos and the fire we light on Matzi Shabbos? We take all the different wicks and they all come together. That's what Shabbos is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring everything together. Fire is the ultimate tool. Do you know how many cultures see fire as the first creation of man? Fire is the ultimate tool of production, of, 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 of being able to change the world. One day a week, you got to remember. In fact, the Gemara says all of the other malachos we learn from Shabbos, from, from fire. One day a week, you got to remember, you're not here to change the world. You're here to think about how you want to change the world. Don't be in such a rush. It's not all about you, etc., etc. That's the tikkun for Chet Ego. Now that we did that, now we're ready to build the Mishkan. Now we realize that we were building the world the wrong way. So Hashem says, you know what? What you're trying to do is not a bad thing. To make tangible space for Hashem in the world, that's a beautiful thing. But you can't do it despite me. You've got to do it with me. So you built a golden calf. That's not what we're looking for. Let's do something else. Let's build a Mishkan. And in the Mishkan, we'll make a Kodesh and a Kodesh Kadashim. And in the Kodesh Kadashim, we'll make a golden ark. And on top of the golden ark will be golden kruvin. An idol of gold. But it'll be built together. Completely different idea. Right? That's what the Mishkan is as well, by the way. But that's a whole other discussion that we'll get to in a later part. So that's a little bit of food for thought. Hopefully raised enough questions for you to think about over Shabbat. Um, we're going to put this on pause.